It's not every day you're going to sing a song like that. Um, <laughs> let me just say something about it, though. That it's you know you, you come you we sing a song like that and um, people say, well, what's this about? And it's about people perishing and. You know, there are parts that we read, some in the New Testament, but especially some in the Old, where it talks about God destroying, and it doesn't sit well with many until you realize what the purpose is. And the purpose was stated in that psalm, that they may know God's name and that they may turn to him. And that is why God sends his judgments, and I think it's important for us to remember that. Now, we're going to turn to Psalm 81, and... uh, We always look at a psalm when we have communion, and we've been working through, and we did Psalm 80 last time, so we're doing Psalm 81 uh, this time. And this is a great psalm for communion because it's a psalm for the festival, the festival, probably the Feast of Tabernacles, which we read about in Leviticus 23, verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. And that was just a a festival where they would have a week, and it became also the festival of tents. It was uh, uh, a time of feasting and of great joy. And by the way, that's a very straightforward thing. Um, Eating food is important. There isn't a single culture in the world where food isn't important. It's one thing that we all have in common, whatever your background here. Um, We have uh, several brothers and sisters from Malaysia, and we used to lament that there wasn't a Malaysian restaurant in Dundee. Well, there is now. And so you can have Malaysian food. Uh, You can have French food. You can have Chinese food. You can have Indian food. You can even have Scottish food, uh, which for me this morning was haggis and scrambled egg. Uh, Haute cuisine, Scottish style. But best thing about having food is it's not you don't not eating alone. It's quite sad sometimes. I mean some of us eat alone because we live alone. Some of us eat alone, we're very busy and so on. But the nicest way to eat is with people usually. And uh, and it, it's a great thing for a church. We eat together. So when we do this spa weekend, uh, one of the important things is that we will be eating together. And after the the service today, uh, many of you will be going to eat at home, and you will be hospitable, and you will invite other people. And that's hospitality is a really vital and essential thing. And so this psalm is talking about the the attitude to have at this particular feast. It deals with the great themes of the Bible the idea of redemption and salvation and the response to that. And it's got uh, three sections, which is always handy for a Presbyterian preacher. And uh, we'll read the first section, Psalm 81. For the director of music, according to Gita, which is probably a musical term of Asaph, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the moon is full on the day of our feast, this is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it as a statute for Joseph when he went out against Egypt, where we heard a language we did not understand or 
we heard a voice that we had not known. It's telling us something about what God requires from us, and it's celebration and praise. Coming as much of this song does from the book of Deuteronomy and also the story of the Exodus. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, rejoice you nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. So these verses speak about uh, a congregation singing, about singers, about instrumentalists and trumpeters. Uh, it's interesting, there was an argument in the church, and there are, I think, historically actually, the Orthodox Church, the Reformed churches, uh, the Catholic Church in the early years. You read someone like St. Augustine, for example, they thought that having musical instruments was wrong because they thought the human voice is the best instrument, which is true, but also they thought it reverted back to the temple worship. Now, uh, obviously, today we, we, we don't uh, think that. There are Christians today who still think that, and uh, musical instruments are not essential in Christian worship, but they help, and they help in this way because music's a great gift that God has given us. And it lifts us and it encourages us to celebrate and to praise. And so he's told, or God's people are told, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. There's a, 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 an excitement in coming to worship God. Spurgeon, in commenting on this, says, that no dullness should ever stupefy our psalmody or half-heartedness cause it to limp along. Um, dull worship. We um, watched last night, uh, there's a thing called uh, a vicar's life or something, and I, I won't say too much about it, it just depressed me uh, quite a lot. Um, but basically, it's showing uh, rural Anglican churches that are dying and uh, these vicars trying to kind of revive and renew, and it's, and it's a bit of a caricature. It's all, you know, cup of tea vicar, and let's try and get people in and do sleepovers in the church and do different things, and I'm screaming at the telly, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Uh, but there was one scene where they, they'd had a sleepover, and they were, everyone, everyone who slept over, the condition was they had to stay for the service. So this tiny congregation were added to by the people who slept over, and um, honestly, Compared to what I heard this morning, it was so pathetic. You know, bang your tambourine and, and just make a joyful noise and so on. And the singing, you're thinking, there was no heart, there was no life. It was as dull as dishwater. And that can happen. It can happen in, in good churches uh, as well. Matthew Henry says this, No time is amiss for praising God, but some, some are times appointed not for God to meet us, as he, he is always ready, but for us to meet with one another that we may join together in praising God. That's why it's important when we sing praise, what the band are doing is they're leading us in praise. They're not praising for us. We're not at a concert and we're not at a show. It's congregational worship together. <clears throat> you may not think of Calvin as the most exuberant of uh, praisers because that's your prejudice and you never heard him sing. But he says this, they were not to stand deaf and dumb at the tabernacle 
For the service of God does not consist in indolence, nor in cold and empty ceremonies. But they were, by the exercises that are prescribed here, to cherish among themselves the unity of faith, to make an open profession of their piety, to stir up themselves to continual progress, to join with one accord in praising God, and in short, to continue steadfast in the sacred covenant by which God had adopted them to himself. So God says, open your mouth and sing praise. And I'm sorry, but if you use that old caveat of saying, well, I'm praising God in my heart, that's not what's said. Shout aloud. Praise God. Um, it's interesting. Imagine, or you may be here, and you, you're, you, you're observing. And imagine someone comes in, and they observe just how we praise. Are we really praising God? Or what are we doing? And we need to think each of that about ourselves. Um, there are very few of you who are so tone deaf that you shouldn't really sing out too loud. There are one or two of you, and we'll tell you, don't worry. But, but most of you are not like that, are you? I mean, most of us can sing, and we can make a joyful noise. Uh, occasionally, somebody does have to be told to tone it down. I, I remember being in London, in London City Presbyterian Church, and there was a woman who was an opera singer, and she took it on her, she praised God with all her heart and soul. Well, phew, um, you, you couldn't be within 10 pews of her. She was just, so she had to be told to tone it down. But most of you honestly, you have to be told, up, up, a bit, come on, join in, sing praise to God, if you mean it. And that's what's being told here. It's a decree of God, we're told. It's a testimony, a statute. It's referring back to the Exodus, to what God has done. And I think that, again, is, is very important. Incidentally, the, the line there that says, well, we heard a language we did not understand, or um, it is it, the, a voice we didn't hear, an unknown voice, it could be Israel talking about hearing Egypt, it could be God hearing Israel, or it could be that, and I think this is more likely, that it is the Lord, Yahweh, uh, speaking words of redemption which the Israelites had not heard before. I, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And he revealed that to, him, to them in the Exodus. So this is a great feast. It was a feast of water and light. It's like the communion. It's a feast of water and light, the living water of Jesus Christ and the light of the world. So the food, the music, it's, it's all pointing to God. Let's read on in verse 6 to verse 10. He says, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you. If you would but listen to me, O Israel, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not bow down to an alien God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. God requires us to sing. God requires us to celebrate. God requires us to shout aloud. God requires us to praise him. Not so that we can feel good. Have you ever done that? Um, you go to church and you think, oh, I like that song or I like that tune. And churches think we can attract people if we have the right kind of music. And the focus is all wrong because the focus has to be on God, singing his word in a way that is appropriate for him, times joyfully, times mournfully, times with sorrow, times prayerfully. But it, all the time, the focus is on him. Now, we have a great advantage in this church because we sing the Psalms. 
And I know one or two people go, that's a bit weird. You know, why can't we sing something a bit, well, a bit more what? Not a bit more biblical, because you're not going to get more biblical than the Psalms. The Psalms are, are, are tremendous because they are God's word. They're, they're what God has, has given us to sing. And we sing, we sing other things as well. We sing other songs that I hope are biblical and teach what the Bible teaches. Because there is an enormous danger that as Christians, we descend into singing songs that are just about us. They're about me. And they're not about God. But we are not here primarily to sing about ourselves. Now, sometimes we do. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But we are here to exalt and praise God. And uh, that is our primary purpose. There are times we will lament our sin. There are times we will come with questions and we will, we will even sing uh, fears and so on. And the psalms enable you to do that. Most modern songs don't let you do that. But the psalms enable you to do that. But the overall emphasis is on praising God. And I'm so thankful that we do have the psalms. I'm thankful that we have uh, musical instruments. I'm thankful that we have presenters. And I'm thankful that we have uh, the different songs, but especially the psalms. For me, they are my lifeblood spiritually. I couldn't do without the psalms. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't be in a church that didn't sing psalms because they're just so emotional and they are so heartfelt and they are so... They're just so God-centered and yet directly fitted for our needs. So here in this psalm, they're told to remember what God has done for them and how the burden of sin has been lifted. God rescued them. And we remember as we sit at the Lord's table that God had rescued us. But this is the great thing about the psalms. And this is a great thing about any biblical church. It never leaves you just with this kind of everything is great. And it doesn't do everything is rubbish, but it doesn't leave you with everything great because there's a challenge here as well. Because look what it says in verse 7. In your distress you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud and then I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now that's in Exodus 17 verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Now, it's a really clear teaching, and you need to hear this. If you are going through trouble just now, going through trouble just now does not mean that you are in a position where you can turn to God and blame God. So here, the Israelites, they are thirsty. We're, we're, we need water. But life's troubles are God's testings. And what we're being told is you must never doubt his love, his care, and his power to save. And we test him when we say to him, he has to prove himself in order for us to trust him or to love him. The water from the rock typified everything that God has done for his people. The bread and the wine tell us what God has done for us. He's given us his son, so how along with him will he not also, also graciously give us all things? And yet, 
You will sit in church. You are a Christian and you will sit in church and you will sit at the communion and within your heart, you won't say it out loud because you know it's wrong, but within your heart, you're thinking, why is God so unfair to me? Why have these things happened? Maybe you've never done that. I've done it and many of you have done it. We murmur and we complain and we rebel. And God says to us, remember what I have done. Remember what I have done. And we're asked to focus particularly on what God has done in Jesus Christ. There are times in our lives we can look and say, well, God has given us food. God has given us um, health and strength. We are so thankful for that. God has answered prayer and I have been healed. But there are other times in our lives when we are ill and healing is not coming. Or... Um, when there's disaster or when there's trouble or when there's hardship at work or at home and when we are struggling financially and when everything seems to be going wrong and at that point we do not have the right to turn around and say I'm sorry but God is not good God is not fair we're told always in prosperity and in adversity to look to Christ great is our sin but great is the mercy of our God. And in these verses, verses 8 to 10, there's, I think, three very simple things that God's people are told to do. You come to the feast, you come to celebrate. Number one, you listen to what God has to say. Have you ever gone into a conversation, and I confess I am one of these people who will do this, you go into a conversation, and you think, they are not listening to me. They just yak, 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 on all the time. And it can be a little bit um, annoying. You want to tell them, just shush, listen to what I'm trying to tell you. But they're too busy talking all the time. And sometimes we come into the presence of God and we're too busy talking about ourselves and telling him what we want. And God says, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. That is the first thing. The second, he says, be loyal to me. You shall have no foreign God among you. And he's setting up a contrast between the pagan gods and the God of the Bible. The pagan gods had to be placated, they had to be cajoled, they had to be bribed. The God of the Bible comes and acts with absolute grace and mercy. In religion, many people will stand in religion and say, hey, I deserve this, I've done this, this is pretty good. God or the gods have to bless me. I've earned it. But in Christianity, real Christians stand amazed at the astonishing mercy and goodness of God. And when we take communion, it's telling you not a great deal about yourself, to be honest. It's telling you that God is merciful and God is gracious and God is good. And so we are to be loyal to Him alone. It is astonishing how the Israelites... And how in the New Testament church as well, you get people constantly compromising and constantly giving their affections, giving their loyalty to other gods, other things. And again, you might be here today and you're a professing Christian, but you know that when you sit at this table, you have been disloyal to God because you've given your heart to something else. And you've you've got the outward facade, 
but you know that you have. And God says, repent, really. Be loyal to him alone. It is, it, it, it is you know, it's just an absolute for Christians that we, we serve our God because he is good. We, we don't hedge our bets. We don't, we don't uh, try and compromise or ally ourselves with people or uh, ideologies or philosophies that are opposed to the God of the Bible. Him alone do we serve. There are no other gods. And then this third one, we have to listen, we have to be loyal, and we have to open our mouth. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It doesn't, sounds a little bit like, you know, a very wee baby, doesn't it? You know, you just go on, open your mouth, open your mouth, and, and I'll fill it. And maybe there's a little bit of that in here. But my mind works this way. God's speaking, and he says, listen to me. And he, then he says, open your mouth, and I'll fill it. And say, well, you're the one who's doing the speaking. What's this filling that's going on? And I think the answer is this. I think it is back to where we came in about celebrating and praising. Responses of praise and prayer and proclamation. In other words, we listen to God. We're loyal to God. And we are so conscious of the goodness of God that we cannot help but praise and exclaim and um, rejoice. It's, I'm, I'm sorry to use this illustration, but it's, it's the one I, I can, it just came in my head. Uh, I was listening to the football yesterday, uh, and Hamilton, Dundee were playing Hamilton, and after our disastrous and unfortunate loss in midweek, uh, I was just listening to it, and they were getting beat. 1-0, and I'm going, oh, well, I can't be bothered. I'm going to switch it off and all this kind of stuff. And then I have a wee beeper on my phone that comes up whenever Dundee score a goal, so it doesn't make a lot of noise. And uh, I just, oh, five minutes to go or something, we're 1-1. I was thinking, this is really, really good. And then I'm, I'm just there, and uh, two minutes into extra time, we score the winner. Well, I, I didn't mean to shout out loud, but I did. You know, yeah, beauty. And, and in, a, in a strange kind of way... That's what's being suggested here, that God, you know, praise God. All right, I better praise him. No, he's not, that's not really how it is. It's just that if we listen to what God says and we become so conscious of what God has done, that there is just a sense in which we just, you can't help but rejoice and be thankful. Wouldn't it be wonderful that if instead of going out of dens or tanadice, walking down the street singing your song after having had a great result, you went out of this church walking down the Perth Road, bursting into praise for Jesus because of what happened. I think that's when revival comes. But maybe that's something that should be there. And then finally, verses 11 to 16. What are they told? But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly would I subdue their enemy and turn my hand against their foes? Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. This harvest Thanksgiving festival that the Jews celebrated was one where the Bible was at the center. It's where the public reading of the law of God, particularly the Deuteronomic law, was read. It's like when we do a harvest Thanksgiving and we have a display at the front that usually uh, the millers provide of all their marvelous produce, which is great. 
But what they did was they had that, and then they had the Torah, they had the Word of God in the midst of that, saying, this is the, this is the fruit. This is as, uh, the fruit as well. I have treasured the words of his mouth, says Job, more than my daily bread. Job 23, verse 12. There isn't a single person here who doesn't like food and different types of food, and we can, we can talk about it. And we, we think about it a lot. Some of us think about it more than others. It's not just the very the, the newborn baby, they're crying because they want food or, or for, as the results of food uh, in, in one way or other. Yeah. But the adult's not really that much different. Our whole life's focused around food. Do you know the average person in Britain doesn't go two hours without eating something? And we're all constantly snacking. And, you know, we, we think about food. We like food. We prepare food. And that's a gift of God. That's not something that's wrong. But what's being said here is our hunger for the Word of God. The festival here was a seven-day camping holiday with the whole congregation. To some of us, that sounds like a nightmare, but it was a, it was a great thing because it reminded them of when they were 40 years in the wilderness in tents. And that was a reminder of disobedience because they were on their way to the promised land and they kept complaining and kept murmuring against God and they ended up being stuck in the wilderness for 40 years in tents. And so God reminds them what the punishment is. The punishment is that God gave them over to their own desires. That's what he says. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. And surely that reminds us of Romans 1, which we've been looking at in the mornings. God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God gave them over. Later on in that chapter, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so they do what ought not to be done. They've been filled with every kind of wickedness. Spurgeon says, be careful what you want because you're sure to get it. Disobedience sends us into the wilderness. This disobedience led to a long journey when obedience would have meant a short journey. Again, Calvin, as this passage teaches us, there's no plague more deadly than for men to be left to the guidance of their own counsels. You know the worst thing that's happened to some of you? God said, okay, have it your way. Do the Burger King method of religion. Have it your way. You do, you, you do the way you want. And that's why you're so cold and that's why you're so far from God because your way isn't God's way and your way leads you away from God. George Swinnock says this, God's leaving one soul to one lust is far worse than leaving him to all the lions in the world. Alas, it will tear the soul worse than a lion can do the body and rend it to pieces where there is none to deliver it. God giving them up to their own wills that they walked in their own counsels is in effect giving them up to eternal wrath and woe. We live in a society and in a world where people say, oh, if I had my way, if I had my way, I want my way. And the Christian comes to God and bows before him and says, not my will but yours be done. Because we trust him far more than we trust ourselves. And little wonder, look at the reward he gives Honey from the rock, not water. Honey from the rock. Not just manna, 
which apparently was fairly tasteless, but the finest of wheat. I'll give you the finest of wheat. I will give you honey from the rock. We are the people, if we are believers in Jesus, who've been brought out of Egypt. We are the people under the word of God, which we are called to hear and obey. Just note this from 1 Corinthians 10. Again, in the context of communion, I do not want you to be ignorant of the facts, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God hears, God fills, God satisfies. There's honey from the rock. The psalm ends with this strong reminder of God's grace and God's resource. The one whom Israel is to trust, who God's people are to trust, is not mean or niggardly or impotent. He gives the best. He brings sweetness out of what is harsh, forbidding, and wholly unpromising. So for some, you will sit and you will take the Lord's table and your you will take bread and wine and the trouble is you're already full. And so you don't taste the sweetness. And for others, right now, there's a bitterness in your life and there's a harshness in your life and there's, there are things that you long to be rid of and you wonder what God is doing and God's word to you is very simple. He's telling you to celebrate and to take the feast because he has provided for you and he will continue to provide for you. And out of the rock, he will bring honey. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And all we have to do is open wide our mouth. All we have to do is open our ears. All we have to do is hear what God is saying and believe what God is saying. And we end up praising not because we feel good and we end up praising not because we've had particular blessings ourselves, but we end up praising because we get a glimpse of who he is and his goodness. It's like sitting at the Lord's table and Jesus is present and you see him in his glory and you, you are filled. You are filled and you are satisfied. My prayer is that those of us who are Christians would, would see that and would grasp that. I pray that we would come with a spirit of repentance to the Lord's table, that we would confess our deafness, that we would confess our stupid and selfish desire to run our lives the way that we want and forgetting the goodness and the glory of God, that we would come with our complaints and our bitterness and give them all to him because he drank a far bitterer cup than we ever will. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, I pray that you will come to see that without life, without Christ, then nothing you taste and eat and drink in this life will ever know the sweetness of the honey from the rock that is Christ feeding his people, and I pray that you would come to know him. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless it to us and help us as we 
continue to worship you and as we sit at your table in your name. Amen. We're going to sing some of these words as we prepare for communion, Psalm 81. We're going to sing verses 8 to 16, and the tune is Stuttgart, and we shall stand to sing. Oh, and as before we stand,